Welcome to Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and I'm proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Every episode of this podcast will bring in a variety of experts to help all writers incorporate more authentic cops, crime, and criminals in their stories. This episode is sponsored by Breakthrough Promotions and features USA Today and Wall Street Journal bestselling author Lisa Reagan, who's now joining me in the interrogation room to clear up a few things about her writing and craft. Lisa writes the Detective Josie Quinn series, as well as several other crime fiction titles. She has a bachelor's degree in English and a master of education from Bloomberg University. She's a member of Sisters in Crime, International Thriller Writers, Crime Writers Association, and the Mystery Writers of America. Her next release is entitled Vanishing Girls and will be available at an internet near you on November 26th. Welcome to Writers on the Beat, Lisa. I'm grateful you made time to stop by. It's an honor to have a few moments of your time. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, I'm reading Vanishing Girls now, and this story grabbed hold of me right from page one, which, you know, is obviously the goal of every thriller writer, so congratulations, you made it. Thank uh, you. For anyone who doesn't have an advanced copy of this, what do you want readers to know about this novel? So this novel is uh, primarily about Detective Josie Quinn. She's a uh, small city detective in a fictional city in central Pennsylvania, and at the beginning of the book, she's on suspension for the alleged use of excessive force. And what happens is a, a teenage girl goes missing in the city, and Josie is, has a really difficult time being on the sidelines. And she tries to stay on the sidelines, but then there are some exciting things that happen that, that draw her in. And then once she understands what's really going on, she... She doesn't have it in her to walk away from crimes that she's knowing that she knows are happening. Writers have always known their characters longer than the publication dates of the public's met them. When did you first meet Josie Quinn, and how would you describe your relationship with this detective? Uh, Josie, I first started writing her in it was uh, thank it was late 2016, I believe. And uh, that first book, originally, actually, her name was Vanessa. And then in the editing phase, we, we changed it to Josie. I've, so I've been working with her. I've worked with her for, you know, a, quite a few years before she was out on the market. Mm -hmm. And what is, would you say that Josie is a friend, a, a confidant, a, 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 an adversary? How, how would you describe your thoughts and your relationship with, with her as, a, as an entity? I think Josie is more than anything is an advocate for crime victims. I think she has uh, such a sense of justice that it's almost hard for her sometimes to to stay within her stay in her lane as it were. Yes. Um you know and I try to be as authentic as I can in the in the this is a series so Vanishing Girls is the first one we're up to number 7 now. Um, and she does follow the rules, but kind of what makes her tick is that she is just very taken with bringing justice for, for family members and for victims it, as part of her job. That's what's important to her. And she prioritizes that over, over everything else, including her personal life. And that's something I really appreciate as a as a cop that you've added that specific kind of subplot or sub arc throughout the this book this series. Is that something that you know everyday cops and 
uh, firefighters, first responders have to deal with, right, is the reality they see on the ground and what their sense of moral code and right and wrong is versus what maybe the law says or what case law says or what policy and procedures say. So it's really common for good cops to uh, run into trouble doing the right thing. Yeah, I agree. And obviously, I'm not a a police officer or a first responder, but I've spoken to many over the years. Uh, My brother is a Philadelphia firefighter. My family had uh, two of our family members were murdered about 20 years ago. So we had to work pretty closely. Yeah. So we worked really closely. Thank you. With the uh, Philadelphia Police Department, the Homicide Mm -hmm. Department, and um, they were just fantastic. You know, it just... I know that they're, you know, not everyone's perfect. And in any profession, you're going to have people that maybe don't belong there, maybe are corrupt or maybe mm-hmm. bring biases with them that, that don't have a place in that job. But my experience with law enforcement and with first responders has always been extremely positive. And I, that is something that I've heard over and over again in the conversations I've had researching my books with police officers and first responders is this idea that, you know, the things they see are the most horrific things that people can do to one another. Mm -hmm. And those are things that you can't unsee. And when you go home at night to your family, you can't necessarily just compartmentalize those things and put them out of your head. So there's a whole really psychological component, I think, to um, working in law enforcement that most people don't realize is, is even there. Yeah, and that's something actually that came up in my personal life recently this week. There was uh, I uh, retired last year and um, kind of figuring out what you know next steps are and going uh, back to university now for some some advanced degree work. And uh, a, a position came to my attention recently that's in an internet uh, crime unit focused on or a crime unit focused on internet crimes against kids. And while I would absolutely love the satisfaction of putting those defendants in prison, right, taking that job home every night, I would try to find the bottom of every bottle of whiskey in town. And sure. I, I know I could do it. Absolutely. So, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter what it pays because it's going to cost me my life. You know? Right. Right. Now, I wonder, you brought up research and, and talking to first responders and officers and being from Philadelphia and writing this about, you know, small town Denton, Pennsylvania, I wonder what your research has been like specifically with small town cops to find out what kind of some of their differences in their daily life are like from uh, the, the Philadelphia PA crew. Well, I have a very good friend that I went actually to grade school with in, in Philadelphia. And then he has since moved uh, to central Pennsylvania and mm-hmm. he's, a, he's a sergeant there and he is a fan of my books and he has been my absolute greatest resource. So I kind of made Denton the same size as the department that he works in. Sure. And um, I've modeled a lot of their structure on, on his department, although not all of it, because some things for the reasons of fiction, I have to, I have no choice but to change. But um, he, he makes himself available to me. And this is the wonderful thing about law enforcement. I think they're so generous with their time and their answers. Um, he makes himself available to me pretty much 24 uh, seven. I message him and I'll say to him, like it could be one o'clock in the morning and I'll say to him, <laughs> don't, don't answer this <laughs> until tomorrow yes. when you have time. And then five minutes later, I'll get this lengthy 
answer. So uh, he's really been my, my greatest resource with this series. And there are a lot of things that are very different, you know, from Philadelphia County, which is mm-hmm. a huge yes. metropolitan area with so many different divisions and departments and units. Yeah, that's one of the things when I was working narcotics uh, years ago, we caught a case here in Arizona that uh, we had the money side of the case where folks had sent a bunch of cash down here to buy a bunch of drugs and, and ship them back to Philadelphia. And in working with the Philadelphia narcotics crew on the other side where they had uh, had caught the dope and, and we were getting ready to, to to help them take off another load, the... Uh, Talking, I think he was actually a sergeant over their narcotics unit. And Philadelphia is a huge department, right? And I think that's one of the things people don't realize is that, you know, big departments don't necessarily have all the resources because it costs a lot of money to give everyone in a big department a thing, regardless of what the thing is. And in talking to this guy, he didn't even have a department cell phone. Oh my the narcotics <laughs> unit because yeah he's like you have to you yeah. have to be a you have to be a captain to get a department phone he's like i barely have an email address <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's you know putting the, yeah so getting you know putting these cops like uh, josie in smaller towns uh you know really allow you i think a lot more leeway and what's what's authentic and and uh, a lot more fictional license yes it does and the, the other th- it's interesting that you brought that up because the thing i uh, run into with Josie is that, um, you know, she is with a small department. And if you spend any time talking to people in law enforcement, they'll tell you that every department has a different budget. And, you know, it, it's that CSI effect, like not every department has this huge budget with state of the art equipment. And so I often talk to my my friend, the sergeant, uh, about what they could reasonably afford to do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I have to try to work that into the book so that it's not, you know, really off the charts in terms of authenticity. And then you, you write something where Josie's worried about the budget, or, you know, she doesn't have Mm -hmm. this state of the art equipment that she, she really could use. And then uh, you go to the editing phase of the book, and your editor is wanting you to, to change it. And so that's a kind of uh, a balancing act there in terms of the writing, because you want to make it authentic, but it it is fiction. In in terms of writing, uh, especially in thrillers, writers, authors are, are generally encouraged to open the book with conflict. And you kind of made Josie's life a wreck at the opening of Vanishing Girls. Uh, I did, yeah. yeah <laughs> and she's been suspended over a use of force allegation, which that's always a tremendous conflict in any cop's life and not just for them, but for their friends and family who were hovering around the outside of this thing. But, you know, in, in my part of the cop world would facetiously say that Josie's been put on the beach, you know, as if she's on vacation, but it never, right. <laughs> like that. Um, you also have her trying to get herself, as you mentioned earlier, trying to do the right thing. Right. But she's trying to get herself into a missing kid case that's being run by the man she wishes would soon become her ex-husband. And I really liked how much conflict you piled on her so quickly. And I kind of suspect things are going to get worse before they get better for her. Oh, they're going to get so much worse. (laughs) (laughs) So much worse. Um, And you'll, you'll see kind of, I mean, I know that a lot of the beginning of the book isn't necessarily, you know, I've taken a little fictional license in, Mm -hmm. in terms of her jumping into this investigation and sticking her nose where she really shouldn't. But you'll see at the end of the book, that where the payoff is and that 
um, one of the things about her as I was creating her is that her instincts very rarely fail her. Mm-hmm. So she knows that something's up and uh, she's going for it. And it, that, I believe it's the first chapter that we meet her. Um, and this won't be a spoiler. It's only the beginning of the book, but that there's a vehicle that crashes into the mini mart mm-hmm. where she's gassing up and getting coffee. Yes. And, you know, I took that from, um, a very similar uh, incident that happened near where I live it was actually in New Jersey. It was a shootout on the interstate. And then the, the vehicle um, kind of came to rest by the mini market. I don't think it crashed into the building, but it was very similar. So I thought that would be a really, you know, if you want to start with the inciting event, yes. uh, that would be a really um, kind of explosive way to start the story. And when you're putting these openings together, when do you know you have enough conflict versus just too much or an overwhelming amount of, uh, of adversity in, in the opening characters scenes? Uh, that is, I know when my editor tells me that's enough. <laughs> 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 well, t- truthfully though, um, if, I mean, my editor will, you know, tell me you have to pull back a little here mm-hmm. or go forth a little more here. But what I try to do is, if as I'm writing it, if I'm not excited by it while mm-hmm. I'm writing it, if I'm not excited to write it, then I feel as though readers won't be excited to read it. So I try to monitor my own personal level of engagement with the, with the book. Uh, I also wanted to get your point of view on point of view. And I ask this of a lot of authors, but do you consciously decide what point of view to use with a given protagonist or series, or do the characters kind of help you decide that when you're sussing out their, their background? I used to write very much all the time in first person. And then uh, I, that was my first book was finding Claire Fletcher. And that was written actually was, was Claire Fletcher, the main character. She was first person. And and then the detective that was looking for her was third person. Mm -hmm. And then as I, my second book, which is Kill for You, that was also in the first person. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of fun, but I now have been I, trying the third person, um, and I really just enjoy that more. I think you can just do more with the narrative so that you can mm-hmm. jump from, you know, I can do, I do those inner chapters where most of the chapters are from Josie's point of view, but then you get these mysterious chapters that pop up as you're moving through that are from someone else's point of view, and you're not sure who. And I think it's just easier when you're in the third person, it, it opens up more possibilities to do those types of things. Yeah, it seems that a lot of writers who have some first person in, in their novels that have come out in the last few years, that there's a real mix of first person for the protagonist, but then also third person for everyone else. They can add in uh, a lot of elements that you know the main protagonist doesn't know, doesn't see. And I, to me, it, it seems like a, a real kind of middle ground between bringing the readers in to your protagonist's life and seeing things through their eyes and having that intimacy, but also having that, that thriller knowledge of what's going on around that the protagonist doesn't know and is trying to find out. I, I think it's a really good compromise, but it's also, to me, a relatively new phenomenon. It always seems to be that previously everything was first or third, not and. It is new. And I remember when I was pitching Finding Claire Fletcher to 
you know, agents and publishers, everyone was saying to me, nobody does this. You can't mm-hmm. have one character in the third, in the first person and then the other character in the third person. It's just, this isn't something that's done. And uh, it took me a long time to get that published, but readers love it. And yes. I, you're right. I've noticed it's become far more common. It doesn't bother me as, as a reader. So I, I don't personally have a problem with it. No, to me as a reader, it feels, makes this thing more like a movie in my head, you know, of the right. mystery and suspense, especially when, you know, maybe the villain isn't really identified and maybe yes. the villain's first person. That is really dramatic to me. I feel the same, yeah. For writers who are composing their own cops and robbers capers, uh, what advice you might offer to best set them off in the in the right direction for commercial success and publication? Commercial success and publication. Well, first, you know, you have to write a really good book before you do anything. And um, my advice is to do a whole lot of research. And I'm always researching. I'm always talking to police officers and um, any resource that I I can find. Uh, I went to, there's a conference, it's called MurderCon Mm, in North Carolina this past summer. And uh, it was wonderful. We, it was a bunch of writers come to the conference and we take classes from um, law enforcement experts. And um, it was unbelievable. The things that I learned there was really valuable. So you want to do as much research as you can. And then I would say you need a whole lot of either critique partners or beta readers mm-hmm. to read your book before you send it to an agent or a publisher a publisher or before uh, you decide to publish it yourself. You want to get as many people as you can to read it who have no emotional investment in your book mm-hmm. or you. So it can't be your mom or your best friend or your husband. It should be someone that is going to be able to tell you honestly where it needs work and not worry about hurting your feelings. And then, you know, there's the two, two kind of avenues of publication. Do you want to be published traditionally and use an agent and go through a publisher? Or do you want to publish on the indie side where most of the work is going to be up to you? Um, And either way, I would say that, um, I would say even if you're going the traditional route, if you are going to send a manuscript to a literary agent, you should hire a freelance publisher and have them uh, give your manuscript a once over. Mm-hmm. Knowing all you know now about the writing business and publishing, if you can jump in the way back machine, what would you tell yourself when you first were trying this? Oh my goodness. I would, <laughs> I would tell myself that, I really need to decide what I want to write um, because it took me a few years to settle into, you know, a particular character, a particular um, brand of suspense, that kind of thing. And even when I wrote my first novel, Finding Claire Fletcher, I was sending it to agents and the agents were coming back to me and saying that it was wonderful, but it didn't know what it wanted to be. Mm. Uh, it was it was bordering on romantic suspense, but it was also a thriller. And so I would have told myself, listen, you need to pick a very specific subgenre, stick with that. And, and again, I would have told myself, have this thing professionally edited before anyone sees it. It's, it's worth the money. It really is. Uh, I've once heard someone say that it only takes about a decade of consistent 
blood, sweat, and tears to become an overnight success. And I see a lot of parallels in the, the writing and, and music industries where by the time you hear a band on the radio, they've probably been together for 10 years. They've cut five albums. They've probably put a million miles on a beat up van playing small <laughs> clubs until they have perfected their craft, right? Right. And I wonder <laughs> as a writer, what your experience was like over that, uh, that, that woodshed. I think that's exactly right. You know, nobody wants to hear that when you're just starting out. Uh, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I don't want to wait 10 years for this to happen, but, <laughs> but that is very true. You know, I sat down to write Finding Claire Fletcher in 2006. Uh, no, 2004. Uh, I finished it in 2006. Mm -hmm. And then I, that's when I started putting uh, feelers out to agents and publishers. It took me four years to get an agent. Um, two years to find a publisher for it. And then that publisher went under and mm. I was kind of floundering around. I was still writing books. I, I self-published my third title and that was picked up by Thomas and Mercer who were absolutely wonderful and it did pretty well. And then um, there was just a little more floundering, not quite sure what direction I wanted to go in. And then I was lucky enough uh, to find the publisher I have now and worked together with them to develop the Josie Quinn series. And so, you know, I started really writing that first novel in 2004 and it wasn't really until 2016 that my publisher now, Book Ochre, uh, you know, we started developing this series, which has gone on to become really, really successful. Beyond writing and your family, what else are you passionate about? What gets you out of bed in the morning and moving with a purpose? Uh, reading. I know that <laughs> might be cliche to hear from an author, but um, I never feel more energized than when I've read a really good book. Um, so reading, um, I'm totally uh, unabashedly, unapologetically obsessed with my dog, mm. who is a uh, Boston Terrier. And um, just, you know, I love my family. I love to spend time with my daughter and my husband. So uh, I heard recently that everyone thinks they have the best dog and they're all right. It's true. Yes. I would agree with that. <laughs> uh, since you brought it up, uh, I know most writers are also the most avid readers. And I wonder if you have a favorite fictional detective in books, TV, or film. I really could not probably narrow it down to one, but... Uh, the first ones that always come to my mind in terms of a detective is uh, Angela Marson's Kim Stone. And uh, Angela Marson's is a writer out of the UK. Uh, she's, you know, wildly, unbelievably successful. I think her first Kim Stone book sold over a million copies. Wow. Uh, yeah, she's uh, unbelievable. And she's so talented. And this character that she's created is so the perfect mix of everything you would want in a, in a fictional detective. She's very tough and no nonsense, but she also has this vulnerable side that readers are occasionally lucky enough to get a, a glimpse at. So she's, she probably is my number one. And then um, Karen Slaughter's. Oh yeah. Yeah. Her it's, she's not a detective. She's a medical examiner. Um, yes. Sarah Linton. Mm -hmm. uh, it's is also one of my all-time favorites. Yeah, that her recent release, The Last Widow, is one of my votes for Thriller of the Year. 
That yes. Was such a great book. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. I had a visceral response to that. Like yeah. I felt like I was in the room or in the area mm -hmm. while I was reading that. It was gut-wrenching in the best yeah. way. Yes. Now, I asked this last question of all the authors who come on the show, Lisa, mostly because it's, it's fun for me. Um, but God forbid it should come to pass. But should tomorrow morning you wake up and find that you've been murdered, what fictional investigator, assassin, or revenge artist would you assign your homicide case? Hmm. Definitely Kim Stone. You have to bring her over from the UK. <laughs> yeah. Maybe maybe um, you died on vacation there. <laughs> yeah, I could die on vacation. Um, definitely her. And um, you know who else I love, although he's not writing them anymore, um, although they're not police detectives, they're private eyes. Dennis Lehane's Kenzie and Gennaro mm -hmm. uh, are two of my favorites. And um, Chelsea Kane's Archie Sheridan, although he's not, she's not writing those anymore either. Uh, but those would be my top picks. I would love it if they could all be on a task force. That would be really fun. Well, you know, that's, it's your murder. You can put this thing together. <laughs> however you it's actually been a really popular vote is uh, an investigator who's competent enough to identify the murderer and a revenge artist like Mitch Rapp or someone like that, who's going to take care of business regardless of what the courts say. <laughs> uh, where can readers connect with you, find your works, maybe get updates on the new releases or works in progress? Uh, the best place is probably my website, which is www.lisareagan.com. And that's L-I-S-A-R-E-G-A-N. And there's all kinds of links there to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, all the other sites. So the purchase links should be on there. Fantastic. I greatly appreciate your time, Lisa. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. The same. Thank you so much. Writers on the Beat, where crime writers meet crime fighters, a copyrighted broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm your host, Gavin Reese, and this episode's guest has been the critically acclaimed bestseller, Lisa Reagan. This episode's sponsor can be found in the show notes and online at BreakthroughPromotions.net. Until next time, take care of yourselves and each other. Be safe out there.